According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in the Bible once again to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Although most of our time will be spent in Matthew 24. We'll bring in Mark and Luke where appropriate. There are some differences in the narrative accounts. And so uh, when necessary, we will go get those uh, differences here. Matthew 24. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, verse 3 says, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of the end of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? They have three questions for him. And he answers uh, the last question first, and then he answers the second question. And uh, this is what we're taking the time to break down. So uh, we'll be right back into it here today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are setting aside our distractions, that we are humble under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to come together today. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our study, that you would set aside distractions and open the eyes of our understanding. Father, bless our study. Encourage us, Father, because I think every time we study the things to come, it's an encouragement, Father, knowing that you're in complete control. Father, your son controls history and uh, we have nothing to fear in the days ahead. Thank you for the blessed hope. Thank you for the uh, anticipation of that trumpet pray that it might even be today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, this is episode 12, if you're following in the overall outline. And I'm going to take a guess on the slide. I'll try this one. Nope. I'm headed for point eight. In point seven, we gave the uh, order of the, of the apostles' questions. Point seven, the Gospel of Matthew supplies the fullest narration of the disciples' questions. And uh, we just simply uh, label them A, B, and C here, or question one, question two, question three, and uh, gave you the scriptures where those answers are given. Now, under point eight, we're going in the other direction, and we're starting with the Lord's answers. All right, we're starting with the Lord's answers. So point eight, question number three, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus is going to give this answer in two parts. He will start by answering, by describing the not yet circumstances. And then he will follow the not yet circumstances with the sign of the end. The not yet circumstances followed by the sign of the end. All right. Now, I, just, I know I might be a little redundant on this, but I want everyone in this room to be able to do this. I want you to be able to take this home and show this. It's one thing to understand it, but then if you have to put it in your own words and explain it and tell somebody else, sometimes it becomes more difficult. So um, you'll notice the not yet circumstances in Matthew 24 are verse 4 down through verse 14 is going to be followed by the sign of the end in verse 15 taking us all the way down to verse 28 so do you see that on the screen 
Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14 is the uh, uh, scripture text for the answered by not yet circumstances. And then Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28 is the scripture range, the Bible verse range for the sign of the end. And you can see that here as you glance with me at Matthew 24. Um, As you look to this, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it. And he starts describing these things. This is going to happen in verse 4. They're going to try to mislead you. This is going to happen in verse 5. They're going to try to mislead you. This is going to happen in verse 6. Wars and rumors of wars. But notice, that is not yet the end. Okay? And you ought to be able to do this. You ought to be able to just scan through this text and show people that you're talking to. See? You see right there? Put your finger on verse 6. See? That's not yet the end. All right? And then uh, verse 8. Are we at the end yet in verse 8? No, this is the beginning of birth pangs. We're not at the end yet. All right? And then we have a then in verse 9 and a then in verse 10 or at that time. And then uh, another one there in verse 11. But notice now, verse 13 talks about the end, but we're not there yet. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come, not has come, but will come. So even in verse 14, we've not yet reached the end. So you can you can walk anybody through this text and show not yet the end, not yet the end, not yet the end. Uh, Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. And we'll probably have to discuss that a little bit. What's the difference between our evangelism today and their evangelism in the tribulation? All right. It's the same gospel in the sense of what Christ did to provide us eternal life, but it is a very unique um, urgency to that gospel because of what the Antichrist is doing and the imminent return of Christ and things of that nature. It is literally the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, If I give somebody the gospel today, I can assure them that they're going to go to heaven when they die. But if I give somebody the gospel in the tribulation, well, not me because I won't be there, but if if a tribulational evangelist gives somebody the gospel in the tribulation, He can not only tell them that he's eternally saved, but he can also tell them the king is coming in less than seven years. This kingdom is about to be manifest on this earth. We just have to live long enough while a third of the earth is being killed and a third of the earth is being killed and a third of the earth is being killed. So it's it's a unique gospel in in that way of thinking. All right. Then we have the end with the therefore in verse 15. We're told then the end will come. Therefore, when you see, when you see, and this is the the visible sign, they ask, what is the sign of the end of the age? And so he tells them, therefore, when you see now, starting in verse 15 through 28, now we actually have the sign and the sign is the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand another uh, allusion there from Daniel. Then let those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on a housetop must not go down to get his things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. You know, you don't have time to get a jacket. Wherever you are, run. That's the imperative. And I hope you're not pregnant because pregnant women don't run very fast. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. It's going to impact your, uh, your uh, you know, the velocity of your flight. Pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. You know, a lot of people don't pay attention to that. I actually believe that verse, if more people chewed on it a little bit and gave it some thought, 
that verse actually demands a pre-tribulational rapture. <laughs> Do we observe the Sabbath in the church age? Not like Israel did. Not like Israel will, once again. Once the rapture is complete, the church is gone. Stewardship reverts back to Israel. Once again, we have a, a Sabbath in effect. Anyway, just a little clue there. All right. We'll talk about uh, the sign of the end here in a moment, but or when we <clears throat> when we wrap up this section here. So there's the difference. Verses four through fourteen. Not yet the end. Not yet. Not the uh, yet the end. Not yet the end. Not yet the end. And then finally, all right. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, boom. There we are. That's the sign. That's what you're looking for. And this, this is going to mark the second half of the tribulation, second three-and-a-half-year period of time of the seven-year tribulation. Um, you can break down Mark the same way. In Mark 13, verses 5 through 13, or the not yet portion, followed by uh, verses 14 through 23, which is the sign of the end portion. In Luke, it's broken down the same way in, in, the, in this way. You have the not yet circumstances in 8 through 19. But then Luke actually omits the remainder of this. Luke does not discuss the sign of the end with the abomination of desolation. Luke actually uh, changes at that point, And you remember what he does. He goes back and he answers question number one. He talks about the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. He talks about uh, when will these things happen related to uh, the Roman uh, destruction of Jerusalem under Titus. All right. Now, how far did we get last week? Last week we got through ABCD... Ah, that's right. And then we were looking at nations in points one and two. I want to get right back to that because it takes some time. All right. See to it that no one misleads you. This subject is ripe for misleading and fear-mongering. Uh, Tommy Ice marks a, a remarkable parallel between these warnings and the seals of Revelation chapter 6. And I would encourage you, if you want to explore that a little bit more, I think it's a, it's a valid comparison to make, which draws the, uh, the seal judgments into the first half of the uh, of the seven year tribulation, false Christ, wars and rumors of wars, under point D, and these are all part of the not yet circumstances, Flam famines, earthquakes, not yet circumstances. Now, are we noticing an increase? Well, then, maybe we're getting closer, but we're still in the not yet circumstances. You understand? Until such time as you see the abomination that causes desolation. Wars and rumors of wars. We use pretty much modern terminology related to uh, hot war versus cold war. Um, different terms that we would use today. Nations and kingdoms. All right. Nations and kingdoms. Ethnos and Basileia. Nations and kingdoms address conflicts among ethnic and political rivals. Now, when has this not been <laughs> happening on planet Earth? All right. We've had wars as long as we've had nations and kingdoms. And we will continue to have wars as long as we have nations and kingdoms. Uh, and as we notice them increasing in intensity, severity, and so forth, uh, we, might be, um, we might be you know, presuming that we must be getting closer because they're getting larger. They're getting more extensive. Though The world wars from the 20th century, unlike anything that had ever preceded it, they are intensifying. We're increasing our capacity to inflict death upon one another. Nevertheless, this is not yet the end. 
The beginning of birth pangs, you understand. So wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things, everything verse 7 talked about, merely the beginning of birth pangs. And we'll talk about how the tribulation is described as labor and the, the day of the Lord is described as birth pangs. But these aren't the birth pangs. These are the beginnings of birth pangs, different from the birth pangs themselves. All right, now where we ran out of time, I want to pick up on it again this morning. Genesis designates lands with an assigned language populated by families organized into nations. And we won't return back there, but we spent a bit of time last week in Genesis 10, verse 5, verse 20, verse 31. When Ham, Shem, and Japheth got off the ark, God divided them into the Hamitic, Japhetic, and Shemitic uh, lines of humanity. Three broad divisions of humanity. And each of those divisions is going to have their subdivisions, their clans within those divisions. And then those clans will form their families. And if you really want to break it down, there's some powerful studies to do there. You come up with 70 families, Gentile families, 70 divisions of, of, of Gentiles. And it's a wonderful correlation, by the way, with 70 elders for the tribes of Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel, by the way, were broken down into different clans and into different families. And the divisions of Israel also numbered 70. And the text tells us in Deuteronomy that the number of the sons of Israel was a corollary to the number of the Gentiles. Fascinating. And yet it's never, you know, on a global scale been observed until it will take place when Jesus Christ organizes Israel in the millennial kingdom at which point they will fulfill their national uh, stewardship to the Gentiles of this earth. All right. So Genesis designates lands with an assigned language, populated by families, organized into nations. And uh, what do we find that Satan attacks today? He attacks families, languages, nations, borders, um, all of this. He has a line of attack on every component of what God designed. Daniel, point B, Daniel stipulates God's control over kings and kingdoms. So we can be very thankful there. Not every kingdom is going to last forever. You know, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Empires rise, empires fall. The rise and fall of the American Empire. Oh, did I say that? Um, nations rise, nations fall. The, the appointed times of their habitation are in his control. Daniel 2.21, Daniel 4.17, and 32. Also, there's a reference in Daniel 5.9 to peoples, nations, and languages. That continues to be the case. On by the time of uh, Daniel in uh, the uh, 6th century uh, B.C. All right, point C, Acts 17.26. Join me there. This is now new material, Acts 17.26. Over to the New Testament in Acts 17. Did this change because the church got started? No, this was the case with in Genesis before the call of Abraham. This is in the case in Daniel after the call of Abraham. This is the case in the book of Acts after the beginning of the church age. These are the laws of divine establishment that transcend all human dispensations. God's laws of divine establishment apply throughout all of human history. They're not... Uh, they're not related to the stewardship, the spiritual stewardship that we think of in terms of dispensations. That's why marriage is a law of divine establishment. Unbelievers can follow God's prescriptions for marriage. 
Unbelievers can be blessed in their marriage if they operate according to the principles of, that God designed marriage to operate on. All right, Acts 17.26, Paul's message here in the, on Mars Hill. Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. He has no needs, as it were. He provides our needs. Now notice verse 26. He made from one. One man, one blood, uh, one, just one. Okay. I think King James has blood there. and It's just one. One man. Every nation of mankind. Every nation of mankind. Wait a minute. You mean we're supposed to be organized into nations? What about just... This whole global governance of no nations, no more nations. We just want a global governance. We're humanity, exalting ourselves. Okay. Realize everything going on today is just trying to redo what Babel was doing way back in Genesis 11. Okay. God said no. Confused the languages, scattered the, the people, put them into nations. He made from one man every nation of mankind. To live on all the face of the earth. Now notice, having determined their appointed times. Their appointed times. Did America become a nation because we decided to revolt against England? Or Great Britain, actually, at that point? God appointed the appointed boundaries and times, you see here. And when a nation comes to an end, why is the, uh, you know... Um, the great, why is the uh, Republic of Venice not around anymore? I mean, the city's still there, part of Italy today, but what, what, why, or Genoa, uh, Genoa, Genoa, uh, Venice, why are they not there? What about the Principality of Antioch? Why is that not still here? God's in control. And specifically, Jesus is in control because it says, Jesus says, all judgment has been given to the Son. So, uh, whereas the Father originally had this, He's given it all over to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ controls history. A valid principle. Now, uh, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Boundaries. Part of God's design. Don't even get me going on what's happening today related to open borders and uh, you know unlimited free movement and immigration and whoever wants to go wherever. Can, you know, that's their philosophy. There should be no nations. There should be no borders. There should be wherever you want to go, you can go. It's all one human planet. All right. Well, that's uh, actually not God's design. And, the, and what he does in establishing nations fashioned by families collected together is that there's this continuity whereby knowledge of God can be preserved, that they would seek God. The purpose here is coming to God and it's course the function of parents to train up their children in the things of the lord all right well Acts 17 26 demonstrates god's purpose in every nation and their designated land so it was true before abraham it was true after abraham it's true after the church 
Revelation 5.9 illustrates Jesus Christ's work on the cross for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So, in heaven, the modern uh, philosophy of multiculturalism does not necessarily hold sway because they still have their individual identified languages, uh, nationalities, and uh, ethnic groups, what we call ethnic groups. Okay? And it's not a skin color race thing, but it is an ethnicity that pertains to um, groupings of families that live together and intermarry together and so forth. Revelation 5, verse 9. In chapter 4, they sing a song of worthiness to God the Father. And in chapter 5, they sing a song of worthiness to God the Son. And then they sing a song to both of them. Um, but worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. So who do we belong to? Christ paid the price, but who did he purchase us for? Who did he take us to? Yeah, we're reconciled to the Father. We're reconciled to the Father. Purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This will always be God's design. The millennial kingdom will feature nations. Uh, if this ever is done away, it will be done away um, possibly uh, in the new heavens and new earth because uh, uh, we don't understand what the national structure might be there. It's just not, we don't have any information on it. If it is done away, and it may not be done away at that point. All right. I suspect that it will be. I suspect that the thousand generations will form their own uh, ethnicity, their own identification as descendants of uh, sons of Jesus Christ. All right. Point three. All of this is under wars and rumors of wars. Okay? Under D, wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Arnold Fruchtenbaum authored a compelling, if not conclusive, study relating this idiom to the historical events of World War I and World War II. Now, I want you to be familiar with it, if you're not already. Um... If you are already 100% sold to the idea and you can't figure out why I'm not on board yet, uh, I'll give you this point of study so that uh, you understand that I'm, I'm very aware of it. Arnold's not the first one to develop this. It's actually common in certain circles that World War One and World War Two is the fulfillment of nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And if you ever pursue... This well, I'm going to share a bit of it with you today. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum is Messianic Bible Studies, which I recommend in print form or in uh, computer form. It's on Log Libronics now. It's number 38. Messianic Bible Studies number 38. The sequence of pre-tribulational events. The sequence of pre-tribulational events. And uh, he starts with World War One and World War Two. He says that those have to happen before the tribulation. Okay. Now they don't have to happen before the rapture. That's like the establishment of the state of Israel. You know, for 1900 years, there was no state of Israel. And conservative Bible scholars knew that Israel had to be reborn. Otherwise, how do they make the agreement with Antichrist in Daniel chapter 9? There has to be a nation to make a covenant with Antichrist for 
Daniel chapter 9 to be fulfilled. And so for 1,900 years, faithful Bible teachers said Israel will be reborn. Israel will be reborn. That has to happen before tribulation. Okay? Didn't have to happen before the rapture. Turns out it did because it happened in 1947, 1948. I always get that mixed up. It, 47? 48, okay. It happened in 1948, and we're not raptured yet. <laughs> so it's pre-tribulational, not necessarily pre-rapture. There's nothing that has to be pre-rapture. Okay. Um, likewise, the rebuilding of a temple. Because he's going to take his seat in that temple. He's going to defile that temple. But first of all, he's going to permit sacrifices in that temple. Okay, So we get these things. They have to be preludes to the, uh, the tribulation. And, um, of course, he's developing here, Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The great tribulation is not imminent. The world stage has to be set in a certain way before the tribulation can actually begin. I would say, well, one big item is the fact that the church is still here. <laughs> All right. I know the tribulation is not imminent. Um, so this study is concerned with the chronological sequence of those events that can be traced, that can be traced and lead up to the tribulation. Of course, the rapture can't be traced in a sequence. And we understand that. He understands that. All right, sequential events. He's going to develop a total of nine. I'm just going to limit what we're looking at at this moment to World War I and World War II. The establishment of Israel, Jerusalem under Jewish control, the invasion by the Northern Alliance, that is Gog Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, the one world government, the ten kingdoms, the rise of Antichrist, the period of peace and false security, and the seven-year covenant. On the one hand, these events come before the tribulation, but on the other hand, they consecutively lead up to the tribulation. All right. A question that is raised so many times in prophetic conferences is, are we living in the last days? Invariably, the answer is yes. But when asked, how do we know this? The answers tend to get rather general. He would say he knows he's in the last days because of World War I, World War II, and the reestablishment of the state of Israel. I would say I know we're in the last days because 1 John says we're in the last days. <laughs> and we've been in the last days ever since John wrote 1 John in the, uh, in the first century. The entire dispensation of the church is last days in the sense that we are and always have been, always will be imminent focused in our uh, role as the bride. All right. Um, I just want you to be familiar with this. He does talk about this passage on wars and rumors of wars. Um, and I'll show you why I'm not concerned. He does a very good job doing what we just did. He takes the three questions that were asked and then he provides the proper order in the Lord's answers. That the Lord answers the third question first. And he answers it in two parts with the not yet and then the sign. And then he answers question number two. And he ignores question number one throughout all of Matthew 24. If you want the answer to question one, you've got to go to Luke 21 to get it. And that's what he says here in this paragraph. It's probably where I learned this. <laughs> No, I learned this from Ralph. Um, but question number three, the not yet portion. And then he starts to clue in on verses seven and eight as if they are different from verses five and six. And that's unfortunate. And this is, I think, where he gets off track. But he starts focusing on nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And he says, this is an idiom. This is an idiom. That's a Hebrew idiom. 
The key factor then is to determine the meaning of the idiom nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Taken in the Jewish context of the day when it was spoken, this idiom points to a total conflict of the area in view. All right. This idiom is found in two Old Testament passages. Okay. I don't know that I disagree with what he's saying there, but his Old Testament passages are not equivalent idioms. And the, uh, the application he then makes to say that this verse has to be speaking of an entire globe at war stretches the point. It's actually circular. It, it's lo- uh, a flawed logic by assertion. All right. So he references Isaiah 19. And uh, where it's city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And he says that's an equivalent idiom there. And in Second Chronicles 15, he finds another parallel in um, verses 1 through 7 there, which again is not equivalent. Uh, nation against nation, city against city. And then he comes back to Matthew 24, And he tries to demonstrate that it's the whole world that's in view, which is clear from verses 14, 21, 30, and 31. And that, if you were part of my hermeneutics class, (laughs) is an inappropriate far context to try to force it into this context, into 7 and 8. Trying to grab later verses, insert them earlier to try to make this point here. So, beyond the fact that the two Old Testament examples he cites aren't parallels. They're similar, but not parallel. And uh, the damage he does to the context of taking later verses and forcing them earlier uh, is problematic. Likewise, uh, then he gets into some uh, rabbinic traditions. The Bereshit, Rabbah, that's not Bible. Okay, you, st- you, can, you can bring in all the Talmud traditions you want. And it's not uh, you know authority over the hermeneutical authority over the text here in Matthew 24. If you shall see kingdoms rising against each other in turn, then give heed and note the footsteps of the Messiah. Okay? The footsteps of the Messiah. One of his books is called Footsteps of the Messiah. Okay? Now, I'm not... I love Arnold. I'm not trying to criticize. I'm just saying this is a difference that he has from how I teach it. And the reasons why, uh, because I view those passages as unconvincing, as they're not pure parallels, the later context is a problem trying to force those, verse, those verses earlier. And um, the, the medieval rabbinic traditions, in my mind, are satanic anyway, so why do I pay attention to those? Um, the Zohar Hadash says, At that time, war shall be stirred up against in the world. Nation shall be against nation, city against city. Much distress shall be renewed against the enemies of the Israelites. Well, of course. Yeah, I just read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I mean... We know this world's going to be at war and they're going to hate the Jews. All right. Nation against nations and uh, city against city, much distress should be renewed against the enemies of the Israelites. The first time such a worldwide conflict occurred was the years 1914 to 1918 with World War I. Most historians agree that World War II was really a continuation of World War I. There's an oversimplification. Okay. Some do. Many don't. Uh, but that's all right. Both had a decisive impact on Jewish history, no doubt about that. The events of World War I provided the impetus for the growth of the Zionist movement. World War I is what took Jerusalem out of Muslim hands and put it, when Allenby conquered, uh, in, in British hands. 
and uh, allowed England to have the British mandate over Palestine. Um, World War II set the stage for the establishment of the state of Israel. All right. I'll come back to that in a moment. So he believes, and, there, and he's not the only one either, uh, that World War One and World War Two, specifically World War One, uh, marks the um, fulfillment of Matthew 24. My question, though, is even after verse seven, we're told in verse eight. All these things, and that includes verse 7, are merely the beginning of birth things. We're not yet to the end. We've not yet reached the sign. It's not yet a sign. Could we think of it as well? It's an increase. It's an intensification. We've got to be closer. Well, of course, we've got to be closer. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. That's always going to be the case. Um, I, 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 I'm interested in the concept, but I'm not yet convinced 100%. I'm far from 100% sold that uh, verse 7 speaks of World War One and World War Two. All right. Because all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then, and then we've got other things that are going to start happening here, including national uh, tribulation, including persecution, um, the different things that happen there. Likewise, these natural disasters... Natural disasters are normal occurrences. So the episodes described here must be of an increased frequency and or intensity. In order to say, yep, these are the beginnings of birth pangs, they must start coming sooner and sooner and sooner and sooner, right? And I should just take my seat and let all of you mothers here stand up. <laughs> and you can testify to how, how birth pangs work. Right. And do they get harder instead of softer and they come more frequently instead of less frequently? That's the pattern. And because that's the imagery that Scripture uses to describe the coming of this sign of the end of the age, uh, it's like we know that we're getting closer to the baby actually being here because the contractions are getting harder. They're coming faster. They're, they're you know, this is how it's being described. So if we start noticing an increase, of, I mean, there have been earthquakes since the fall. You know, we read about earthquakes in the Old Testament. We read about floods. We read about, uh, you know, hurricanes and storms. But are they increasing? See, and there's a uh, reason to believe they are. Even given the fact that the population's larger, we're, we have more people living on the coast, we have better detection ability. Even counting for all of that, there's still an increase in frequency and intensity. Again, Arnold Fruchtenbaum documents the increased frequency of earthquakes throughout the centuries. And uh, that's where I left off the reading, so let's get back to it. The earthquake factor is even more interesting. According to Encyclopedia Americana, between the years 63 AD and 1896, there were only 26 recorded earthquakes. And were there more than that that were unrecorded? Undoubtedly. You know, we didn't have the seismic... Um, you know, equipment. We didn't have uh, the study of these things. People weren't living in all the places they're living today. Uh, but still, documented 26 recorded earthquakes in that span. Most of the world's earthquakes began to occur since 1900. 
In conjunction with World War I, there were several significant earthquakes. According to the United States Survey, National Earthquakes Information Center, um, earthquakes with 1,000 or more deaths from 1900 are as follows. And so it starts to walk you through from 1905 to 1939 there uh, in these countries and the number of deaths. Actually, the right-hand column takes you from 1948 down to 1999. And um, i make this larger. There we go. Your country deaths, your country deaths. We've got two columns. So starting in 1905 with India, going down through uh, 1999 with Turkey. And so he's just documenting an increase in the number of earthquakes, uh, including their frequency and the magnitude, the actual damage and loss of life done by these, uh, by these various deaths, uh, by these various earthquakes. There's been a tremendous increase in earthquake activity in conjunction with World War One. The lists listed, the ones listed here, are only the major ones with a death rate of 10,000 or more. However, these statistics should be tempered with the fact that man's ability to detect earthquakes worldwide has equally increased. I think more than equally increased. Nevertheless, these statistics are significant. Added to this, there are a great number with smaller death rates. An article from Dispatch from Jerusalem, third quarter, 1992, states. In the first thousand years after Jesus, there were approximately five recorded major earthquakes, although we are sure that more occurred in remote locations. However, the trend has been on the increase. And this one, I found this one interesting. In the 14th century, 157. In the 15th century, there were 174 major earthquakes. 16th century, it increases to 253. 17th century, 278. 18th century, as the first birthings of the idea of Zionism started to take hold. It tripled or nearly tripled to 640. And then in the 19th century, where active steps were made to return uh, the Jewish people to their homeland, 2,119 major earthquakes. That's in the 19th century. Increased in the 20th century. Nearly 900,000 earthquakes have been recorded thus far in the 20th century, an earthquake every hour. All right. Now, I uh, don't, I have not and have no way to verify those statistics or to validate them, invalidate them, or compare them to maybe some alternative statistics and so forth. But this study just on its own is remarkable. This study on its own gets your attention <laughs> and says, wow, that's, uh, that's a lot of earthquakes. All right. And so as we see these things, various places, there will be famines and earthquakes, it gets your attention, but we're not, we're not going to start writing books about signs. Because these aren't signs. These are the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs. In fact, what do you call those false labor? The, the, what, do you, what do you call those? Braxton Hicks. That's what it is. Is that named after two different people? Uh, whatever. All right. Well, so here we are. Braxton Hicks contractions in eschatology. And, and, but see, that doesn't sell books. <laughs> you can sell books and make money talking about, ooh, this earthquake in Haiti or the tsunami and the, and the radiation cloud, you know. Um, and in Barack means lightning and you can, you know, and Obama means, and you can, you can make some money if that's your motivation. All right. So natural disasters are normal occurrences, so the episode described here must be of an increased frequency and or intensity. Otherwise, there's no value to it being even listed as a factor for the not yet period of time. 
pay attention. The beginning of birth pangs are not the actual birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs are not the actual birth pangs spoken of through prophetic literature. And Jesus didn't just make up birth pang language to describe the day of the Lord. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah all used it. And uh, Jesus is not the last to use it because Paul will use it in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. But prophetic literature uses pregnancy language, uses birth pang language. We want to be clear, the beginning of birth pangs is not the same as the actual birth pangs themselves, the labor that brings the baby. They're the beginnings. They tell us that labor is about to start. All right. It's about to be real bad. You know, of course, a first time mother doesn't exactly know because she's never had it before. So she starts having the beginnings and she thinks, oh, this is it. And then when it really hits, then she just kind of laughs at herself because what she thought was it wasn't it at all. And, you know, now here, this is it. <laughs> all right. Isaiah 13, 8, Isaiah 26, 17, Jeremiah 4, 31, Jeremiah 6, 24. Micah 4, verses 9 and 10. And then the Apostle Paul's use is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. Birth pangs itself references tribulation. So let's look at these. won't spend a lot of time on this, but um, I do want to get on to the global anti-Semitism there where they attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. Uh, Isaiah 13, 8. And it's interesting because Isaiah 13 connects with 14. And this segment here is this oracle. And it's an amazing oracle. It's against Babylon, crazily enough. Even though during Isaiah and Hezekiah's ministry, Assyria was the threat. Babylon was not the threat. But this is so prophetic and it's so eschatological. It looks ahead to the end times. It addresses Satan for a big part of it in Isaiah 14. Uh, this is just a, an awesome oracle. In chapters 13 and 14 here, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. And um, start talking about these uh, mighty warriors, these consecrated ones coming. Uh, verse 6, wail, that's an order. <laughs> wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. You have a baden on the way. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. And every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. No kidding. What man's ever been in labor? <laughs> and yeah, look what happens to their armies. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. Notice how purifying it is. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and, its, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the, to the arrogance and the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Put, put humanity on the endangered species list when uh, <laughs> the tribulation starts unfolding here on planet Earth. All right. 
But there it is, pains and anguish, writhing like a woman in, lang- uh, in labor. S- prophetic scripture will use childbirth, will use labor, labor pains in description of judgment, wrath that's to come. All right. Not the beginning of labor pains, labor pains is a description of this period of time. Isaiah 26, 17. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. And uh, there's actually a larger context for this that refers to what historically they went through and then in shadows what they're looking forward to going through. Um, and it probably would take longer to uh, describe that this morning than it would be worth it. Um, the dead will not live. It says in verse 14, the, the departed spirits, the Rephaim, will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them. You have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. So we're looking at Israel. It's being written as if it's already happened. It's being written as if it's a historical completion. But yet it's prophetic because it's looking forward to what will ultimately happen after Second Advent, after Armageddon, after Jesus Christ increases the nation, the mountain fills the whole earth, and, uh, and so forth. So the pregnant woman in labor is once again there related to the tribulation. Jeremiah 4, verse 31. Jeremiah 4, verse 31. Uh, Let's see. This is interesting, too, because this follows... There is such an amazing power here in Jeremiah 4. 23 through 26 references the destruction of the angelic earth and the tohu wabohu conditions of Genesis 1-2. And then from that vision, we, we look forward to second advent. Thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Shall be, not is, but shall be. Yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark. And he starts talking about what's going to happen here throughout the tribulation. And then um, addressing the desolate one in verse 30. A title we don't often think of related to Satan or his beloved son. And then uh, verse 31. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, saying, Ah, woe is me, for I faint before murderers. All right. Again, childbirth is the language. Labor is the language in a tribulational setting related to Israel. And if, of course, they do endure to the end, the wonderful baby they get to give birth to is the, the millennium itself in the, the uh, kingdom of Jesus Christ. Two chapters over, chapter 6 and verse 24. 
It's kind of interesting. People have tried to identify this nation. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people is coming from the Northland, and a great nation will be aroused from the remote parts of the earth. This is evidently a uh, superpower that has uh, a range, uh, the ability to project force at tremendous distances. They seize bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. They ride on horses, arrayed as a man for the battle. Against you, O daughter of Zion, we have heard the report of it. Our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us. Pain as a woman in childbirth. So there's our childbirth language there. Do not go out into the field. Do not walk in the road, for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. Uh, I mean... Not only you under curfew, but you don't even dare go outside of your house. The minute you're outside of your house and that predator drone's ready to drop some <laughs> drop some ordnance. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn as for an only son. Mourn as for an only son. A, lament, a lamentation most bitter. They have to actually adopt the attitude God the Father had when he sacrificed his only begotten son. They must mourn for the Christ they crucified. He cannot return until as a nation they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A lamentation most bitter, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. All right, that's Jeremiah. Micah, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Say, whoever looks at Micah, kind of crazy prophet reads from, or pastor reads from the minor prophets anyway. Micah 4, I was actually reviewing some of our classes from, what, two years ago when we did the minor prophets, and man, I want to redo this. It's a good series. Micah 4, verses 9 and 10. Understand, um, there's some good things are going to happen in the millennium. The chapter kind of starts off with the good news. Um, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us about His ways, that we may walk in His paths. Can you imagine national governments? Can you imagine our president and our uh, congressional leaders? saying this year we're going to have a retreat. It's not going to be at Camp David. It's going to be in Jerusalem where the Son of David will teach us doctrine. <laughs> wow. From Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distinct, uh, distant nations. So, you know, if we have a boundary dispute between us and Canada or whatever... You know, we don't have to go to the United Nations and have a, a, a conference or have a negotiations and blah, blah, blah. Jesus Christ will settle everything because He's appointed the boundaries of their habitation. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Even the training is done away with. There's no more military industry. There's no more... Uh, the, the service academies, the, the, the colleges, the schools that actually study strategy and tactics and logistics. All of that is done away with. That's why the, the final Gog-Magog rebellion cannot be a, 
a military campaign in the sense of a, uh, a, a uh, because the, even the art of war has not been taught for a thousand years from strategy and tactics, logistics and industry and everything else. There is no complex promoting the, uh, the weaponry any longer. All right. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. How much better than having a burning bush in your own house? You have your vine, you have your fig tree. Jesus Christ is on the throne. He's writing his law within the hearts of Israel. They're going to be teachers to the Gentiles with no one to make them afraid for the mouth that the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, how do we get there? <laughs> These verses sound awesome. Let's, 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 let's do that now. Well, we can't do that now. There are things that are going to precede that actually being manifest on this earth. And it's going to require uh, the repentance of Israel. So uh, anyway, there's more good news in 6 through 8. But when we get to verse 9, we start seeing. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? See, they're not ready for verses 1 through 8 yet. There is no king among them. Their house is being left to them desolate. They've actually rejected their king. Why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And then it goes on and finishes up the, the chapter here. All right. So childbirth once again. The Apostle Paul will use this language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So the prophets used the language of childbirth. Jesus uses the language of childbirth. And Paul uses the language of childbirth. That is labor pains. 1 Thessalonians 5. All right. I can see now we're not going to get to genocide until next week. All right, we'll, we'll save genocide for next week. Um, before you do anything else in 1 Thessalonians 5, just remind yourself it's not 1 Thessalonians 4, <laughs> okay? Um, chapter divisions are not, you know, original to the manuscripts, but in this case, they're very helpful. Chapter 4 speaks of the rapture. Chapter 5 speaks of the second advent. In chapter 4, we've got one of the most comprehensive rapture messages, the uh, central rapture passage of the New Testament. You combine it with 1 Corinthians 15 and John 14. You can combine it with some other places, but this is the primary text for the rapture. And uh, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then we move on beyond that to Second Advent. Now, as to times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now, times and epochs is not a rapture application. We don't have a prophesied time related to the church. And in fact, related to epochs, it's not appropriate to think of the church age as an epoch. The epochs from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, those are the epochs. And Rome will be done away with by the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the stone made without hands that crashes to the earth and fills the earth. Uh, the church is not an epoch. We're not a, a geopolitical structure that's conquering this planet some people think we are some people are trying to times and epics relates to israel not to us 
Um, <clears throat> for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they, not you of course, this has nothing to do with a church, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So Paul basically is just recapping all the prophets plus Jesus in the sermon, in the Olivet Discourse saying, you know, tribulation and second advent, that's child, that's child labor, a childbearing uh, labor language. But you, brethren, I love the they's versus you's in this chapter, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. See, when you come to Christ, you're taken out of darkness, delivered in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You're not in darkness that that, that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. That whole day of the Lord thing, that's not our realm. We're not designed for it. We have no business being there. We had no part in the first 69 weeks of Daniel. Why would we have a part in week 70? So then, because we are not of them, let us not sleep as others do. Let's not act like the ones in darkness. But let us be alert and sober. And then it goes on talking about how we can be alert here in the armor of alertfulness. All right, so there's the Apostle Paul also saying not only that tribulation and second advent is uh, an appropriate subject for labor pains to be the metaphor, uh, but he goes even beyond that to say, and by the way, that has nothing to do with the church. <laughs> nothing at all to do with you. That's for them. As far as you're concerned, you're in the light. You're a child of light. You're not a son of son of darkness. All right. We'll come back. Um, the last item we've got to deal with is verses 9 through 14 of the not yet stage. The last thing we've got to deal with in the not yet stage is the... Um, the uh, anti-Semitism, the execution of the Jewish people, which actually precedes the Great Tribulation because it actually starts to be introduced in the, in the not yet portion of Matthew 24. And, uh, and it's remarkable how it can start and how the Jewish people will accept it on a limited basis as long as they're okay. It's a horrible thing. So next week, uh, fair warning, it'll be fairly depressing to uh, talk about... Um, execution of people on the basis of their Jewish race. But not new in human history and uh, dominated the last century. And it will be uh, it will be a feature of the not yet portion. And then it'll be the absolute uh, dedication of Satan in the final three and a half years. So and we'll talk about that. Why? Why does he why is he so bent? Can I say hell bent? He's Satan after all, right? Why is he so <laughs> hell bent? To kill every Jew on the planet. What, what would that accomplish? All right. Think about that between now and next Wednesday. Father, thank you for your truth, for your faithfulness. Thy word is truth. And I thank you that, uh, Father, you called us. I thank you that we turn to you from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for your son, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.